0: Wants it to first, champions, the Tampa
1: Bay Buccaneers are Super Bowl 55 champions, led by Tom Brady. The long wait has ended after a half century. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions once again. And lightning has
2: struck twice, and the Tampa Bay Lightning are back-to-back Stanley Cup champions.
0: Well, we're back. We got rid of the hangover for episode number 101 of four future considerations
2: manny can you talk quieter please
0: oh my head i went on a bender (laughs) after i had to put up with the 90 day fiance i got blasted (laughs) (laughs) after listening to you guys talk about that oh my goodness not since the Eagles won the Super Bowl have I been <laughs> that hammered.
1: I just thought it was really cool that we come on here for episode 101 and Rashad dresses up like Cruella DeVille. I think that was pretty smooth. That's a good look. That's a good look.
0: <laughs>
2: uh, Rashad, you've never looked better, buddy. <laughs> oh, I've been waiting for so long to break this out. I bought this in episode three.
1: <laughs> how many times we've talked about just wrapping this show up John says, you know what? Maybe we go with 72 more. Why 72, John? Now we understand.
0: (laughs) And we may never
1: see John after this again. It was (laughs) between the Cruella DeVille and the Ariel from the Little Mermaid costume for Halloween. So he saved Cruella DeVille for us today.
2: It's really a mic drop moment for me. I mean, where do I go from
0: here? (laughs) Can you just wear an a costume every single episode we record. Like, how many do you have in your bag of tricks?
1: Your tickle trunk.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But when we record, make sure you're in the other room. Or stay in Martell. I don't want you to bring that tickle trunk down here when you come to Windsor. Oh, my goodness. Hey guys, we're days away from the Super Bowl. Big, big game. That's right. You know, the big game.
2: We talked about it in uh, our first episode of the week, episode number 100.
1: Yeah, so go back and have a listen and uh, join in the conversation. You can even punk on some of the bets that Manny and John picked uh, throughout the podcast. (laughs) 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 If you want to lose some money, that's the way to go. Let us know what you think is going to happen in the big game. (laughs) Mention us on social media, podcast FFC on Twitter and Instagram. For future considerations on Facebook, let us know what you think the halftime show is going to be like. Who's going to win this one? What's your favorite? What's your winning prop bet going into the Super Bowl? We want to know which one you're going to make bank on.
0: Uh, we we might have to put another poll out to see if you can get disappointed by the poll results. Yeah, again. so
1: Manny can start up Pava zero one one three, Manny eighteen ninety one, uh, and uh, rig another poll. <laughs> <laughs> And you can
2: also email us for future considerations at gmail.com is the address. So you can uh, send us topic suggestions and comments and questions. And uh, guys, I wanted to ask you, how much of the Olympics have you been watching?
0: Uh, I've been watching a little bit, mostly the women's hockey. Um, You know, I was shocked this week that there was an article or an opinion piece in the star that women's hockey should not be at the Olympics.
1: With Rosie the attention seeker? Yeah, I yeah. couldn't
0: believe that they actually put that out. Um, but I was going to watch the women's hockey anyway. These women are playing with masks? Yeah. Under masks? It's incredible. And Canada beating the U.S. this week, that was that. Yeah, was that was fantastic. a good
2: game. It wasn't a Mona Lisa by either team, but it was entertaining, that's for sure.
1: We were still hammered from uh, doing episode 100. I stayed up to watch Switzerland and Russia, the first of the men's games, which would have been Thursday morning. I guess at about 3:40 a.m. That was a that was an outstanding contest. I had to double check uh, when I woke up later on in the day to find out what exactly I had just watched. Not a lot of recollection of that, but now that the men's hockey's got started, I'll uh,
0: I'll start paying a little more attention.
2: And our guest today on the OT has some experience at the Olympics.
0: This guy is a Canadian broadcaster who can be seen on television every single day from March until October. He got his start in sports broadcasting at the CBC in 1987 and worked as an anchor in Edmonton and Ottawa before becoming one of Sportsnet's original broadcasters. He co-hosted the first-ever edition of Sports Central. Over the years, he has hosted coverage of the Grey Cup, the Super Bowl, the NHL Draft, and of course, baseball, from the All-Star Game to the playoffs. Not only has he been a host and an anchor, he has also done play-by-play, from arena football to the CFL to baseball, even the Olympics. Our guest has been a part of the Toronto Blue Jays broadcast team since 2005. Please welcome the host of Blue Jays Central, Jamie Campbell. Manny, nice to see you. Welcome to the podcast. Great to have you aboard, Jamie. We're thrilled. Well, we're off to a pretty reflective
3: start here. It it You list off that stuff and it makes me realize that I'm... I'm now on the downside of my career, clearly.
1: <laughs> People uh, that uh, we have on are either very flattered by how much uh, they've accomplished uh, in their careers or they they think their time is about up in their careers when we go yeah. back that yeah. far.
3: <laughs> I, I chuckle with my uh, one of my Sportsnet contemporaries, Brad Fay, frequently about the fact that it feels like yesterday, and I'm sure you guys can certainly identify it with this, where – where you're constantly looking ahead at progress and, and what ambition you want to amass as you go. And he turned to me some time ago and said, if you think about it, those days are over now. And now we're just writing out careers and are closer to retirement than we could possibly have been to aspiring to something. So uh, let that be a lesson for anybody that doesn't think that time flies,
0: because it truly does. We were just talking about the Olympics, too. Um, are you still watching the Olympics a lot? Are you paying attention to everything that takes place?
3: Yeah, it's difficult, though, given the time zones, right? It And it always has been um, when they are where they are located. Uh, I'm really enjoying it, though, uh, despite the absence of, of spectators. I feel terrible for um, athletes and accredited media because... All I hear is that they don't see any of Beijing. It's from that Olympic bubble, undo a bus. The bus never stops. It ends up in some Olympic village that's fenced off. You can see restaurants and stuff beyond the walls, and you can't go or see or do anything. I guess it's like... uh, you know, it's like saying you've never been to Denver, even though you took a flight that connected there on its way to LA, right? You never get out the air, outside of the airport means you probably never saw the beauty of the city. So I do feel for the athletes in that respect.
2: Yeah, and 2010 was a little bit of a different experience, and I don't know if uh, many people know this, but you called Canada's first gold medal on home soil at the 2010 Olympics when Alex Bilodeau won in men's moguls. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you remember that career highlight? We were kind of waiting for a medal, and we finally got one, and you were the one who got to call it.
3: Yeah, you know, I told somebody the other day, I wasn't even supposed to be in that chair. Originally, all of the um, moguls' events were supposed to be called by Um, a gal who at the time worked for TSN named Holly Horton. And if I'm not mistaken, I was never really given the full story here, but about five or six months prior to the game, she found out that she was pregnant, I think. And suddenly they were in a bit of a panic as to who was going to fill that seat. And I was already doing some other things at Cypress Mountain. So about three months before the games, they said, do you want to do moguls? And I said, sure. You know, just, <laughs> just tack it on. And, uh, you know, one of the first things I did was jumped on a train, went to Montreal, and had breakfast with Jennifer Heil, who won the silver medal the night before, and Alex because they trained together and were coached by the same person. Um, and the one thing I'll always remember about it, beyond the fact that they basically had to truck the snow in to make it look like it was wintertime, we, call, we called it the winter-summer games while we were there, is that Alex Bilodeau was having this horrendous season on the World Cup circuit. He hadn't won anything to that point. He kept being defeated by um, a Vancouverite-turned-Australian by the name of Dale Begg-Smith. And so on the night that he actually won the gold medal, it wasn't like, um, you know, it wasn't he wasn't even close to being an overwhelming favorite. He wasn't the favorite at all. So... The beauty of the evening is that it caught every one of us by surprise, myself included, that he did what he did. And that's what made it special for me.
1: Yeah, the the opportunity to call something like that and, and not scripted or or planned, I'm sure, as the uh, as the race just unfolded, it, it kind of all uh, came to you, as, along with your, your new background in, in moguls.
3: Yes, yes. Well, you know what, Matt, I can tell you this now. I don't mind admitting this. Um, I had scripted something to say... Because Jennifer Heil the night before was, in fact, the favorite to win the gold medal. And I had written something just to sort of summarize what it must feel like for Canadians to finally see a gold medal won in this country, given that we didn't win anything in Montreal in 76 or Calgary in 1988. And so I figured it would be best to at least write something that summarizes the feeling. And when she lost... I was really upset at myself because I made the mistake of thinking that you can prepare for the outcome of a sporting event. That's essentially what I did. And I got back to the hotel that night and I said, don't you ever, ever think that you can predict the outcome again. And the funniest thing is, just after we noticed that Billado had claimed top spot and that the final skier had come down the hill. There were no other competitors. Bill Ado was the gold medalist. I'm reacting with great surprise, but I'm also, with my left hand, reaching into the stack of papers from last night <laughs> to see if I can find that thing that I had written to sort of summarize to Canadians what this means and found it and used it, in fact. So it was, um, let's just say it was Partially scripted. Only partially.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It was great. He has done it. Yeah, Uh, Alex Bilodeau has done it, right? Yeah. We obviously want to talk some baseball here too, but we want to talk about your career as a broadcaster. When did you catch the bug? We're all broadcasters Mm -hmm. here, former broadcasters, but when and how did you catch the bug?
3: Well, we all have individual stories. I'd love to hear yours if there are more time. Um, There usually is a moment that you can trace where you realize um, that, you know, this is what I think I want to do with the rest of my life. I, I, I know that moment came at a very young age for me. I think the, the most defining moment for me, the one that, that sticks in my memory so vividly, was a chance meeting at a Blue Jays game in 1977 that I had with a then-superstar player by the name of Lyman Bostock, who played then for the Minnesota Twins. And um, I learned later, um, after he was senselessly murdered about a year later in in September of 1978, um, I learned that the way he had come over to me um, during batting practice at Exhibition Stadium and... um, just wanted to know who I was. I was this lone nine-year-old curly-haired redhead kid standing there waiting to get autographs from members of the Minnesota Twins. And he, I never forget him coming over and introducing himself and conversing with me. And I knew exactly who he was because I had every conceivable baseball card uh, by that time. And I was mesmerized by the fact that somebody on the playing field had just taken an interest in a kid who's going to be sitting in the stands. I just couldn't get over that. And it had this profound impact on me. And what it taught me was that I can sit in the seats and be a spectator, but in a weird kind of way, I can also be part of the game in some kind of way. And I don't have a moment where I stood up and said, I think I'm going to be a broadcaster. But I do remember the moment where I thought, boy, you know, I don't just have to be a spectator. I can be part of this because... Thanks to Lyman Bostock, he kind of gave me the indication that you are welcome to be part of the world of, of professional sports, and in this
0: case, specifically Major League Baseball. Wow, that's a great story. Wow, what a story. That's a great story.
2: Um, you worked in Edmonton and then in Ottawa, which is where I first saw you on CJOH, and then you became one of the first faces that anyone saw on Sportsnet. Do you remember that first show and uh, how things went during the first days of that network?
3: I absolutely do. I got a bouquet of flowers from my aunt and uncle the night of opening night. Um, Were you the only one to get flowers? (laughs) I think so. (laughs) Yes, if I remember correctly. Um, My co-host that night was a gentleman by the name of Darren Millard. And I I mean, you guys can probably understand what it feels like when your network is in black and suddenly it just comes up. And it starts, you know, what has become now over two decades of sports broadcasting. It's bizarre. It's bizarre thinking that maybe there's nobody actually out there. We, we're all nervous. We're all, you know, butterflies and, and stomach in knots. And yet there might not be a soul watching this thing, right? We don't know. <laughs> I've done broadcasts um, like that before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, to to uh, to steal a suggestion made years ago by the great Joe DiMaggio when somebody asked him why he goes all out, even in meaningless games, he says, because he never, he will always think there is somebody up in the grandstand that has never seen him play before. And um, I, I remember the night vividly. I can't imagine there were many people um, watching. I do remember hearing afterward that our good friends over at TSN – were chuckling and um getting a good laugh out of all the mistakes that uh this new network was making and um basically feeling unthreatened if uh, if that's even a word um and I do remember hearing that and being a little upset by it but uh you know we got our legs eventually and and the viewers eventually came I think well we're still there so yeah so we, must have, we
0: yeah. must have done something, right? Yeah, I think so.
2: Yeah, I was going to ask you, when did you feel like, because it's like building an expansion team, right, in a sport. you got to get all the right people, mm-hmm. and then you've got to develop the chemistry, and then, then you've got to get some rights so people will watch. When did you feel like Sportsnet had arrived and you weren't just trying to nip at TSN and that you were real competitors?
3: I, that's a great question. I just don't have an answer for you. Um I'll, I'll I'll tell you there was a time even around the second year where I was doing um, late nights with a guy by the name of Mike Toth at that time, and we were having the time of our lives. I mean, it was it was sort of Jay and Dan before Jay and Dan, and we laughed at everything. We cut up everything we possibly could. We we made fun of each other. He was funny. I tried to play the bit of the straight man because I'm not inherently funny. Um, and, and one night I said something that was a little bit offside. In fact, it was a lot offside. And he was convinced after the show that we were both going to be dismissed. And now I must, I must clarify, it wasn't a racist comment uh it wasn't a misogynistic comment it wasn't a homophobic comment it was just it was kind of rude and four or five years later uh the guy who helped found sportsnet gentleman by the name of scott moore was leaving to go and work at the cbc i believe or move out to vancouver and i took him aside at at a at a party that they were having for him to say goodbye and I said, can I ask you a question? If you had known that I had said this, would you have fired me? And he said, on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, oh, okay. So, um, you know, the interesting thing, and every now and then I'll see Mike. um, He's not in the industry anymore. And say, do you remember that time that that thing slipped from my mouth and we thought we were done for? And he said, yeah. And I said, can you imagine if that had happened in the time of social media? Uh Uh-huh. I said, because you and I, you know, I mean, he's not in the industry anymore. I guess I wouldn't have been, or at least I would have had tried to have, you know, found my place, whether it was back in Ottawa or Edmonton, where I'd been for four years. I don't know what I would have done. But, uh, boy, it's funny the lessons you can learn when you're not broadcasting to anybody. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, is it true that TSN and Sportsnet shared the same studio space? Yeah, uh,
3: not the same Studio space, the same building, so we shared the same makeup room um, and the same cafeteria. <laughs> so it wasn't; it was not uncommon to go and grab um, a meal before a show and be in line with James Duffy or Darren Detitian, Not uncommon at all, and and most enjoyable. In fact, we all established um, sort of beyond the rivalry friendships because of it. It was great. Um, but there So the food fights were pretty good or? They, Yeah, I, I wish I could tell you we had one. There were none.
2: There was at least one marriage that came out of that, too, right? weren't uh, t-
3: Oh, there, <laughs> there were several. Yeah, I'm sure I don't know if we should get into that, but yeah, who who are you thinking of?
2: Um, I'm trying to remember now. Was it Sean McCormick There was uh, and- Sean
3: McCormick and Jennifer Hedger there- still happily married. Absolutely. Yeah. That, yeah. That one survived. There were a few that didn't survive (laughs) and, and, and never, and never got to the altar, but we're not going to get (laughs) it. You guys, you all know how, you know, this industry can be. It's, uh, um, you know, it can be a little bit incestuous because you're working so tightly with the people that, you know that are, are trying to produce radio or television or podcasts with you that you become close to them, and it's not at all surprising that people end up marrying people within the business. I'm sure it happens in every business.
1: Some good-looking people in uh, in that industry as well. It's <laughs> it's tough sometimes. Yes. <laughs> So we know you cover the Blue Jays. We know you love covering the Blue Jays in baseball. And then Manny went through his soliloquy of your your career of moguls, cycling, the CFL, arena football. Which of those uh, games or or sports that you've called uh, stood out to you? And and what kind of memories do you have from that end?
3: Well, I forgot about arena football, for goodness sakes. (laughs) The the short-lived tenure of the Toronto Phantoms um, and the then the best part about those two years is that my, uh, my um, analyst was the late Leif Pedersen, who was just an absolute gift mm-hmm. of a man. And boy, did we... He was. We had so much fun. Um, the Olympics in 2010 will always be the greatest broadcast experience I will personally ever have. Um, but every single day hosting Blue Jay Central... Is um, just as rewarding, only because when I was, you know, sitting on the benches at Exhibition Stadium watching the Blue Jays as a fourteen and fifteen-year-old and thinking how cool it would be to be broadcasting a baseball game in any way, and to think that actually it did arrive, it did come to fruition. Is just I I, I tell people I never forget that because. The moment you forget how lucky you are and how fortunate you are to be doing what you're doing is the moment you're not really truly able to give everything you can to a broadcast. Because let's be honest, 162 games a year, we've had to sit through some absolute duds. And and I don't mind a dud because I can just simply remind myself that the the 13 or 14-year-old in me would be doing anything possible to be sitting in that chair broadcasting a dud so um, without fail the most nervous I I, I ever was was uh, the first Blue Jays game I actually got a chance to call which was in an emergency situation um, in place of Rob Falls in 2002 and I was scared to death the Blue Jays got blown up by the Yankees so it wasn't much of a ball game but uh, um you know, it's the best part of as as you've all experienced it's 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 getting on that bike and you have to learn how to ride it and um, that first pedal is often the hardest one
2: and then your signature home run call was you can kiss that one goodbye where did you come up with that
3: I kind of stole it from Fergie Oliver right and 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 I and admittedly I, I didn't really have a signature it, it certainly wasn't trotted out Um. Every single time, because I'm not one who believes that uh, that every home run is as important as um, as the one hit before it or hit after it. it. It, I can assure you, if if it was ever in a situation where it was a postseason game, you know, like Jose Bautista's um, home run in in 2015 against Texas comes to mind, there would never have been a you can kiss goodbye because you know, some moments just call for a, a different kind of a reaction, a more spontaneous reaction. So um, I would love to get the chance to 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 do some play-by-play again. I really enjoyed those five years. But um, I also know that there's nobody better than Dan Shulman. And, uh, you know, Dan has been um, rightfully recognized for his excellence. and And, I mean, you know, Beyond Vince Scully and the Dodgers, there's there's not a man I would want to hear um, broadcasting a, a ball game other than Dan. And the, and the great thing is, is I pretty well get him in my ear every
0: single night of the baseball season. We pride ourselves on our kids doing a lot of research on our guests. Oh, yeah? But John <laughs> – oh, my nine-year-old is all over you, John. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Where are we going with this, man? John, John actually found a block that he wanted to ask you about. <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, there was um, it was either an article or a blog that you wrote while you were playing, doing play-by-play, and you were talking about a song you had heard on the radio, and you were sort of describing this moment where you had finished doing the game, and you got into your car, you were completely alone, you were thousands of miles from home, and then this song came on the radio, and you were saying that the vocal sounded kind of lonely, and you kind of had this moment, and then um, I think, if I recall, I remember thinking that the song was Big Girls Don't Cry by Fergie, I think and um oh yes and i was and i was trying to remember um when i read that i was like is he happy to have the solitary experience is he really missing his family and his friends or is he just loving the song and i thought if i ever get the chance i'm gonna ask him about this oh
3: that's a wow
2: that's an oddly (laughs) specific question i know but i read that and i was like i want to know the answer to that
3: you have to be careful john what one writes right because it it can come back to get you (laughs) (laughs) was that the song though was i right It was absolutely the song, and I don't remember why it impacted me the way it did, but I do remember um, on this particular uh, trip to Anaheim, we were playing the Angels. I had to fly commercially. I wasn't part of the charter flight to L.A., and I don't remember why. I only flew charter with the club about 50% of the time back then, because if you remember, we didn't broadcast all the games back then. So it might have been a case of they had played – a game, say the night before in Kansas City, and I was and I was maybe you know flying to meet them in Anaheim, and I landed at LAX. It was typical Southern California midsummer weather. Uh, rented a, a soft top, if I'm not mistaken, had it down, and the first song that came on the radio was that song by Fergie, which I still love. And I don't know. I think it was a reflective moment where. Holy smokes, I'm in Southern California. We got a four-game series coming up with the Angels, and I I get to call it, and life doesn't get much better than this, and there's probably a really good chance I had just become a father either for the first time or the second time because both my kids were born when um, during the five years that I was calling play-by-play, Play, which frankly was one of the reasons, if you can believe this. I was moderately relieved when I got replaced by Buck Martinez because uh, I promised myself I would never miss the upbringing of my children. And I knew if I'd stayed in a play-by-play role and traveled with the club that I would miss so much of their lives. And I I was almost thrilled to know that I would instead be situated in a studio either at the Rogers Center or in Toronto knowing that I was going home to my kids every night.
1: Jamie Campbell, uh, host of Blue Jay Central, our guest on For Future Considerations. This has been fantastic. Again, thanks uh, so much for, for joining us. And let's talk a little baseball itself. Are you surprised with the state of baseball right now with this lockout and, and how it's uh, it's been looming?
3: I'm not surprised, Matt. Um, I don't think anybody should be surprised. This has been coming for some time. We've had a lot of labor peace, um, but we've also noticed that there is definitely, at least in my opinion, an imbalance in the um, distribution of revenues, uh, to put it uh, very directly. And, and there seems to be something wrong with a game when its biggest stars right now are all in the 22 to 23 to 24-year-old stage, right? Um, I was I was thinking just today, if you were to name the top five players in all the game right now, I mean, Acuna Jr., Tatis Jr., Guerrero Jr., it seems they all have a junior attached to their name. <laughs> but, but we're talking 22 and 23 and 24-year-old kids. And, you know, in some cases, these players are getting paid uh, the minimum wage, which, you know, all of us would love to get paid at some point in our lives, but still... Uh, based on on a on an industry that you know in a good year generates somewhere between nine and a half and eleven billion dollars a year, it seems like all the great players are highly underpaid, and that to me says there is a real issue with distribution of salary. And I don't know how they're going to fix it. Really, I really don't. And there are all these other things that play to, um, you know, whether it's expanded playoffs, which I'm all for, frankly. Uh, the more teams that have a chance, the better. Uh, maybe restructuring the draft a little bit. And, and and there are so many issues. And that's that's why I think we're in the place that we are in, is that there isn't just one thing. There seems to be 10 different things right now, at least, that these two factions are, are butting heads upon. And um, Joe Siddle, my broadcast partner on Blue Jay Central, reached out to me today and... I told him, I said, there's no chance, in my opinion, that opening day um, is as scheduled. And he said, you know, I finally believe it. I I am convinced that you're right. And unless they go ahead and shorten spring training, they get something done relatively soon. It just doesn't feel like they're close. And it feels like the players are really, really ready to dig in.
0: Want to talk about the Hall of Fame, Jamie. Um, But our crack research staff found this out, too. You caught a ball from David Ortiz, the new Hall of Famer. I did at the 2004 All Star mm-hmm,
3: Game. Yeah, you want to hear a great story there? So that was that was the 04 All Star Game in Houston. Um, I was there with a guy named Warren Socky, who for a brief time was an analyst on Sportsnet. He was great. I thought uh, he was very good, very well researched. Um, we arrived in the press section. Um, and couldn't find our designated seats. And I'll never forget Warren just saying, well, let's go sit over there in those seats. And they belong to the Washington Post. And I said, we can't do that because at some point someone from the Washington Post is going to come along and they're going to need their seat back. And I said, come on, we can't. And he said, trust me, just do it and we'll move if they come. And he (laughs) says, besides, they don't have a major league team yet (laughs) in Washington, right? Because this was 2004. (laughs) Well, they never came. And sixth inning arrives. Um, Carl Pavano's on the mound. He throws a heater to David Ortiz. And I'll never forget the flight of the ball. I'm thinking, this thing's going to land in my lap. And it did. And the best part was I went down because I had accreditation and a pass into the American League uh, clubhouse. And I guess Ortiz had gone in because he was a DH, had gone in into the clubhouse and reviewed the home run a couple of times and noticed this guy in a fancy suit and curly red hair had caught it. So when I walk into the American League clubhouse, I hear this booming voice from across the room going, Hey, you're the guy that caught my ball. And I look, and it's Ortiz and he's, he's, he's waving me over. And um, I walked up to him, and I said, Oh, yeah, great to meet you. And uh, I said, I'm just here to give you the ball back. And he looks at me with a, a bit of a stunned look, and he said, you don't want anything in return, and I said, uh, "No, I just thought you'd want the baseball." He goes, "Wow!" He goes, "Thanks." He said, and he points to Manny Ramirez, who's standing off to our right. He had also hit a home run in that game, and whoever caught it came down to the clubhouse and wanted ten grand for the ball. <laughs> <laughs> so here's here's me walking in, offering it up to David Ortiz for nothing. <laughs> And uh, Ortiz said, man, Maddie's guy wanted 10 grand. You don't want anything? And I said, not really. And, I, you know, I guess if I was – you know, I wasn't a, a, a ticket-buying fan. I was accredited media. So for me to stand there and go, oh, yeah, I'll take five if you're willing to give it to me was not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but to his credit, uh, so that was uh, midsummer, 2004. I started doing play-by-play the next year, and we went to Fenway Park for a series – um, early in the 2005 season and he saw me at the batting cage and he said, come into the clubhouse when the game's over. So when we finished the broadcast, I walked down to the Red Sox clubhouse and went in and he was just getting undressed and he threw me the jersey he was wearing that day and uh, and then scribbled a really nice thing on the back on one of the numbers and I just said, that's very nice of you. It's a nice little exchange. Wow. Do you
0: keep it or give it to one of your kids?
3: No, I still have it, but boy, you know what? There's something really cool about a home run ball at the All-Star Game, and there's a little bit of me that wishes I hadn't have been so generous.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Ten grand, ten large. I don't mean it that
3: way. I mean, there's there's part of me that would love to have that ball back, and I don't know why. I hear you. You know, because he probably wore 100 jerseys in his time, but he only hit one All-Star home run, and... However,
2: it is kind of cool that he looked at you and I, he was like, Hey, there's the guy who didn't shake me down for my baseball. So I guess that's, that's, that's right. That's yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what other kind of memorabilia do you have from, from all the sports that, that you've been to or events that you've been to that you kind of collect? Is there one thing you, you go looking for at different stadiums or is it just kind of uh, falling in your lap, like home run balls?
3: You know, I, I, I uh, <laughs> yes. I, um, once I got into the business I stopped collecting things. I have a massive collection of memorabilia, if you can believe this, that I accumulated as a teenager. Um, I probably have somewhere between 80 or 90 game-used hockey sticks from Maple Leaf Gardens. Uh, I was somewhat obsessive in that regard. Um, Patrick Waugh in his rookie season in 1986, Robitaille the same year, uh Mario lemieux in 88 the year he won the Hart trophy steve eiserman Michel goulet gilbert perot chris chelios i've got a pretty cool collection of of twigs as i like to say to my boys um bats i used to ask for when i was a teenager at exhibition stadium are a whole lot harder to come by i have a few of them but the one i treasure the most was the very first one that was given to me by gary Gaetti, who was a third baseman for the uh, Minnesota Twins in '84 when he when he came over after batting practice and handed me this thing that I'd actually asked him for at the hotel about four hours earlier. Um, I remember uh, my dad took me to my first Indy 500 in 1984, and in the program there was an insert with pictures of the entire field of 33 drivers. And over a five-year period, I had every single driver. That's great. Sign it. Um, most of them in person at the Molson Indy here in Toronto, but some of them I had to mail it to, and I missed one guy who unfortunately died before uh, I could get it to him. So that's one of my one of my prized possessions, to be sure.
0: That's very cool. Well, that's quite the collection. You don't need ten grand from Big Pop.
3: No, I what I <laughs> that's quite what I need <laughs> is some direction as to what to do with all of this stuff when uh, <laughs> you know when my time is up. Like I'm, my poor children are going to get this like. U-Haul full of stuff. I hope they know what they're going to do with it.
0: Hey, I wanted to ask you, too. Everybody's got an opinion. We were talking about Big Poppy in the Hall of Fame. Do you have an opinion on Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens? Are they Hall of Famers?
3: My, my opinion changes almost daily, unfortunately, now, based on an article I read um, by Doug Glanville, of all people. And I don't know if you guys saw this about a week ago. He wrote an article on ESPN saying why he thought it was right that Barry Bonds in particular was not um, elected to the Hall of Fame. And a lot of it had to do with, in a way, all of those who were alleged to have used PEDs cheating out all of those like Doug Glanville who chose not to. And he reflected a little bit on his career that was injury-shortened sh- uh, injury and how if I had chosen to go to the PED route, maybe my career would have looked a little differently statistically. Maybe I would have benefited more financially from it. And I never really considered that end of it because I'm not a player. Um, but the other side of it is that Barry Bonds, and I went to a lot of his games when he was a Pittsburgh Pirate. Uh, I, I loved the way he played the game, so whenever we'd go on road trips, I used to try and focus on getting to see the Pirates, and that was before he got big-headed, big-bodied, and went after the home run record that allegedly um, he was envious of when Maguire and Sosa were turning heads in 1998. So. I mean, the career he had before he allegedly started using was um, fantastic, obviously. And so, too, was the career of Roger Clemens. So, I, I, if, look, if the Hall of Fame is supposed to be a representation of the history of the game and you don't have the all-time home run king, the all-time hits leader, and quite possibly top three, one of the greatest pitchers of all time, then what history are you representing? If there's a way of having them as honored members, but also um, denoting that in some way on their plaque or in a special section, then go for it. Uh, and you know, people will cite this character clause. And and I always say, well, what about all of those you know unseemly characters that are already in the Hall of Fame? You know, there are guys like. Ty Cobb, who, from what I read, was a, a vicious and awful human being. There's all kinds of racists in the Hall of Fame, right? Um, well-known, horrendous people um, honored in Cooperstown. I mean, I'm sure you've heard all about the stuff that's happened in the last couple of years. The allegations toward Roberto Alomar. He's in the Hall of Fame, right? So I, I don't know. It I. I'm on that fence, and I'm on it, and I'm off it, and I'm on it, but I tend to side with Bonds and Clemens should be in. Um, Because, I'm not going to name names here, but it's pretty obvious who's gotten in in recent years and got in with a little help. I think that's obvious to anybody who wants to look over the list of the last, say, 10 years of induction. So it's a great question and forever debatable, it seems.
2: And then, of course, we have to ask you about uh, this year's Blue Jays team whenever the lockout ends, and we hope it's soon. uh, Do you see them adding some more star power?
3: I do. There's that weird period going on right now where they can't do anything, and that's unfortunate. Um, I love the addition of Kevin Gosman. I love that they re-upped Barrios. In a way, because they also lost Ricky Ray, they haven't changed the look of the rotation from a year ago. What's essentially happened is that Barrio sticks around and Gosman replaces Ray, who happened to win the Cy Young award. Um, But also you're going to get an Alec Manoa, who's got an extra, you know, a, a sort of a three quarters of a year of major league time. He'll be a different pitcher. One would think coming into the 2022 season when it starts um, who knows what Nate Pearson's direction is going to be, but the word is that they want to go, you know, start a reliever, maybe a little bit of both, maybe, you know, two, three innings max as a starter from time to time and then bring him out of the bullpen another time. I still think, you know, that kid has got tremendous potential to be an absolute game changer. And I try to re- remind people how. I think in the start of year 2 people wanted Vladimir Guerrero traded, you know, for a bucket of balls and uh you know and a, and a couple of cases of Gatorade because he wasn't living up to uh the expectations and and I try to remind people you got to give these kids some time, man. You can't expect them to come up and be uh all-stars immediately. So I think they're gonna I think they're gonna be a really, really talented ball club and, and and the best part is is that they're gonna be a little bit older and a little bit wiser. I'm sure a lot of people who watched them last year were, you know, kind of banging their heads when they'd see mistakes by Guerrero or Bichette or Biggio or Danny Jansen or anybody young. But you know, in time you learn from those things and it makes you better and, and that's what I'm hoping we see from this team in twenty twenty two
1: we had kind of gotten your your thoughts uh, a little bit earlier on the, the, the role of baseball or what baseball's mission. So we'll kind of ask you if uh, you were commissioner for a day, uh, other than settling this strike, <laughs> what would you like to see change about baseball?
3: You know, we have this conversation every third day during the season. <laughs> so do we in our podcast. Yeah, I'm sure. To the point <laughs> where... There was a point not long ago where I said to Joe Siddle, just privately, just as you know, as one of our broadcasts was was taking place and and the game was underway, I said, "What about, what if you just sh- if you took an inning away? You know, what if, if if the concern is with length of game and pace of play, instead of trying all these gimmicky things, what if you just reduced baseball from a nine-inning game to an eight-inning game?" And he looked at me and said, "Are you kidding me?" And I said, I don't know. I don't have solutions. But what I do see is a game thinking it's not good enough, searching for all of these solutions, and uh, and and they can't seem to come up with anything. Um, you know, this this whole three batter rule hasn't sped anything up, as far as I can tell. I don't have the data in front of me, but um, you know that hasn't changed much, if anything, essentially because you know starters don't go five innings anymore. It's, it's three and change, four and change, and then you're done. And then here comes a series of relief pitchers. And I still love the game. It certainly looks a whole lot different from the game that uh, that I grew up with. But I'll be honest with you guys, I don't, I don't have a solution as to, as to how to make it better. What I do know is that on the last day of the year last year, when the Blue Jays needed to and did beat Baltimore, and get a little help from the Tampa Bay Rays and the Washington Nationals, there were people glued to their TV sets and they were surrounding us at the Rogers Center watching our big board that had the out-of-town games on. And baseball still has that draw. It's not like our love of the game has changed much. It's just that the look of it has changed and none of us are too sure how to uh, you know, romantically bring it back to what we thought was a better version of it. Maybe this is... Maybe this is the best version of it right here, and
0: it's just different than we're accustomed to. I don't know. Um, Matt and myself being down in Windsor, we plan on getting Joe on uh, very, very soon, too, to talk some baseball. He's a good um, guy to
3: talk to. That guy, I'll tell you, he's he has become one of the best analysts I've ever seen, and it it is such a privilege to sit up there before he tells the audience anything listening to him Pick it out of a, a ball game; these little tiny things that you would never think to look for, and he figured them out because he had to squat behind a plate, whether in the minor leagues or major leagues, for you know uh, over a decade. And and he he clearly clearly sees the game differently than than anybody I know.
1: Uh, I've been to a Joe Siddle uh, catcher's camp when I was uh, a little kid at St. Clair College. So really. <laughs> He was he was Johnny bench for for me at, at one point
0: <laughs> I can imagine I can imagine oh, we'd love to be a fly on the wall too in that studio uh, at the Rogers Center too with you guys a uh, last question for you Jamie and we appreciate the time that you've had what's your advice to young aspiring sports broadcasters who who watch you on television all the time
3: uh, I, I I must say Manny I trot out the same thing Uh Every time I'm asked that question, but I I think it applies. And that is that there is nothing assured about the ambition you may have. It's never going to be easy. And you do want to get used to being rejected. Um, I still have all of the thanks but no thanks letters that I received after sending out my demo tapes when I was in my early 20s. And it happens to everybody. But what I do tell people is... If you love what you do, there is no greater gift in the world. Um, I know too many people that have gone and do go to jobs every day that they can't stand. And I'm not one of those people. I haven't gone to work ever and not felt excited to be there. And that's sort of the gift that this industry has given me. So my suggestion suggestion to any young broadcast uh, student is that, you know, take the hits because there'll be lots of them and you will feel many times like you're not good enough. Um, But if you love what you're doing, put the blinders on and and deflect all of that criticism and all that rejection and just keep going. And at some point, you might find that point of comfort where you can make a living and remain in your position. Uh, And if you do, you'll, you'll be grateful for it. And that, look, that comes from you know, uh, now an an old sort of veteran type guy, who honestly, guys has has no idea where this industry is going. You know, I, I I'm a conventional television guy. I was raised with, like you, raised with, you know, at the first at the in the first few years, three channels and and one radio station. And I just I can't envision where this whole thing is going right now. So what I try to do is. Be as good as I can at what I do and uh, hope like heck,
0: maybe 10 years from now, I'm still capable of doing it. Well, we hope you are, too, because you're a joy to watch. And this was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. I know we've gone into extra innings here, but um, we appreciate the time, Jamie. Thank you. Great to speak with you guys. It's been a pleasure for me. Our Thanks again to Jamie Campbell, the host of Blue Jay Central on Sportsnet, for joining us on the podcast. Boy, did he have some great stories. I didn't understand... Or didn't realize that he had that much memorabilia. That's remarkable.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. His story about how he got into the business is is one of the best stories I've ever heard. Like that was, uh, you know, he asked us and then he tells his story. I could tell you, I wasn't telling him my story after he tells that one. (laughs) No, I'm trying to meet chicks, Jamie, is what I'm trying to do.
0: I don't know. I don't know if anybody could top his story. That,
1: is, that was a incredible story.
2: That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that.
0: Yeah, the big poppy story, and of course, your blog yeah. that you found back in the day on it. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's
2: right. You, shot, yeah. you
0: finally got to ask him the question. Yeah. I know. was <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> uh, speaking of baseball, and since this is episode 101 of the podcast, let's talk about the greatest number one in Detroit Tigers history, sweet Lou Whitaker.
1: Sweet Lou. As Whitaker hits it high in the
2: air to deep right field, and and looks up. This one is gone.
1: Lou Whitaker
2: being serenaded with a chorus of Lou's, as is the case in Detroit, who has hit three home runs in his last five regular season Two nothing.
3: Gooden gets a curveball up in the strike zone. Oh and two, you want to get it down. Belt high. Second time he's seen that pitch, and he gets
0: all of it. And you have to do that here in the Astrodome.
1: The Tigers have announced that they will be retiring Whitaker's number one at Comerica Park on August the sixth. I mean, boys, we're we're going to be at this, right? Oh,
0: I know where I'm going to be. I'm I'm going to be next to you. Cheering on, sweet Lou Whitaker, yelling Lou!
1: I can already see us now sitting along the first base line. I've got two plastic cups in my hand; one's full of beer, the other one's for the tears that I'm about to shed.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> As they drop the curtain and put the number three of Alan Trammell and the number one of Lou Whitaker side by side at
0: Comerica Park, longest running double play combo in baseball
2: history you know what i was thinking if they don't have the border open you guys are going to just swim the detroit river to get over to this thing aren't you
0: oh we're going to find a way we're finding a way Rashad. you gotta come down for that
2: all right i'll watch safely from the uh, from the bank of the river and i'll direct uh, the rescue teams to to get you guys out in the middle if you uh, start to get tired
1: If the wind's blowing just right, you'll hear a soft sob coming from the upper deck along the first lace line.
0: You know what, Rashad? Bring the tickle trunk down because we'll use it to cross the Detroit River. Hey, you can dress up as Paws. (laughs) Get in for free. (laughs) Remember to follow us on social media, Podcast FFC on Twitter and Instagram. For Future Considerations on Facebook.
2: Jamie Campbell's going to listen back to the rest of this episode and go, what the hell did I just become a part
0: of?
2: (laughs) He's going to want to (laughs) come (laughs) back. And uh, remember, you can also send us your questions, comments, and topics by email at fourfutureconsiderations at gmail.com.
1: Well, thanks for listening so much. Obviously, if you've listened to the last two episodes, this is a big deal, and I'm glad that you were all a part of it Uh, I'm sure it's something that you'll tell your kids about one day, your grandkids, maybe even uh, when you watched or listened to episode 100 of For Future Considerations, episode 101 with Cruella DeVille, Manny Pava, and myself, Matt Dumashell. And look at this. They even scheduled the Super Bowl just to really wrap this week up for you. That's coming up in a couple days, too. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll see you
0: next week. That was a disgraceful performance, in my opinion. In my opinion, that sucked. Their mentality's awful, their attitude's awful. It's been their M.O. for the last three years. Tonight I saw and heard one of the most disgusting, rudest, sick demonstrations
3: in my entire career. Probably the worst.
2: It's garbage. And the editor that let it come out is garbage.
0: You're still here? It's over. Go home.